Let's turn with me to Daniel chapter 11 as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. Daniel 11, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 45, which is the end of the chapter. And if you look in your Bibles, you will see that this is a massive text. It's massive. Um, and so we'll get through it. We will, we will definitely do that. Uh, there's a lot going on here. And so as we, as we come to God's Word, let's, let's go to Him again and ask for His help with this text. Let's, let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word today, particularly as we come to this particular passage, pray Your blessing over it. Pray that You would help us to understand that you would help us even to endure as we read these many details of people and places gone by that that we don't pay much mind to, if we're honest. But we know that this is your word, that it's good for us. It is good for teaching. It is good that we can hear your word read and taught, and it is about your Son. It is about our Lord Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that as we come to you, that you would help us with it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I prepared for this message, one of the commentators that I read actually said of this passage that it might just be better for a Sunday school classroom rather than a sermon because of the kind of text that it is. And I think they were kind of kidding, kind of, a little bit. This passage seems to kind of lay out history with all these odd events and figures that took place in a time that very few people know about. And it's just where it's not because it's some sort of secret. It's just that people aren't really studying this time and this history, or not very many people are. Of course, we read it as history today, but Daniel was given these words as prophecy, things that had not yet come to pass. Critical scholars of this passage in the book of Daniel in general have stated that obviously prophecy doesn't come true, so the book must have been written after the fact, yet we know that prophecy does indeed come true, as one who gave these words to Daniel also orchestrates all his creatures and all their actions. And so we don't have to wonder whether or not God can say something in the past that will come true in the future. He absolutely is able to do that. So as we come to this passage, we are a bit of, we have a bit of an advantage as we read it from a historical point of view, at least for most of the passage. Because when we, as we come to the end of the passage, we'll see perhaps a, a portion of it is from a time period that is not yet come to pass. It is in our future as well, and it's really, it's one of the hardest few verses in this chapter for sure, and probably some of the most difficult verses in the Bible. So as we come to this passage, we not only come to it with the advantage of history, always, but we also come to the advantage of Christ, always. As our Savior, we are His people. This is His Word. He means for us to be blessed by the preaching, the hearing, and the applying of His Holy Word to our lives. And so as we we come to this, I decided to break it into three manageable chunks, the following main points. First, fleeting greatness. Second, political chaos, and then thirdly, spiritual vigilance. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Daniel 11, 2 through 45. Normally we stand at this time, 
And you're welcome to stand in the reading of God's Word. But like I said, this is going to be a really long passage, and I don't want to like create a bunch of restlessness at the beginning of the sermon. And so if you're welcome to just sit and hear God's Word read, Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 45. This is God's Word. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of the heavens, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to the others besides these." Then the kingdom of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and shall rule, and with his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north, and shall make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered, and he who supported her in those times." And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king in the north and shall, and shall deal with them and shall prevail. And he shall also carry off Egypt to their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold and for some years shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. And there, then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow the pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as the fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come with great army and abundant supplies." In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. The king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand for even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom and shall bring terms of agreement and perform them. He shall give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterwards he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall rise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person. 
to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even in the prince, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with them, he shall exact, he shall act deceitfully and shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall rage war with an exceedingly great army and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land." At the time appointed, he shall return to come to the south, but it shall not be at this time as it was before, for the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and shall take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear to profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves with the flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortress instead of these. The god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress with the help of the foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horses, with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow the pass through, and he shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the south shall alarm him, 
and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch the palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Amen. This is God's word. So just before we get into this, there's a whole lot there, as you as you heard. Remember last week we looked at Daniel 10, and Daniel 10 through 12 were really this one whole unit. Right, and Daniel 10 is, a, is kind of introducing us to this passage that we have here today. Remember in Daniel 10, there's a man there, probably an angel, that spoke to Daniel concerning Daniel's prayers. Remember, he was going to speak to Daniel concerning the answers to his prayers, but he was delayed for 21 days by this prince of Persia. And we talked about the magnitude of that spiritual conflict that was going on in Daniel's day and must be continuing even in our own, even though we're unaware He mentioned that after dealing with the prince of Persia, he was going to have to go deal with the prince of Greece. Remember that. We look at Greece quite a bit today as they're featured very prominently in our text today and the physical conflicts there in that nation. And again, to Daniel, as a prophecy, Greece is relatively unknown at this time, or at least in this part of the world. And now to us, they're known as history, especially all of those empires and conflicts and whatnot. There's an important lesson for us here. I regularly review it with us because it's easy to lose sight of it. But in Genesis 3.15, God outlines the future conflicts of history, all conflicts of history that were future to Genesis 3 and future even to us by saying to the serpent, the very devil himself, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head. You will bruise his heel. And over and over again throughout history, we have this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Over and over in biblical history and in our own history and even in our own present time, he shall crush the head of the serpent is ultimately referring to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who came and bought a way for his people through death and resurrection. And while his people have their salvation absolutely secured in him, It is not completed as we wait for his return, as we wait for him to finally finish making all things new, to eliminate all of our enemies forevermore, to restore all the broken and lost things of the world, to return the world back to its flawless creation, back to that garden that we long for. And while we wait, we witness turmoil all around, as Daniel did, as Daniel was prophesying about. Daniel's teaching us here that turmoil, that there's even turmoil that we can't witness. Spiritual war that rages on even without our knowledge or understanding. So as we finish this book up next week, that is one of our major takeaways. There is more out there than we can see. But if God is for us, who can be against us? We are his for all time and he intends to save us for all time. And that brings us to the first point, fleeting greatness. Look with me again at verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So we read about these Persian kings. We've been reading about them a little bit, the last of which is probably one that we don't read about in this a book directly, and that's the king Xerxes, who was able to muster this massive army 
and he wanted to invade Greece, which ended up being historically a massive mistake for him because this was the spark that Greece needed. Greece had kind of been just doing its own thing until it was attacked by Persia, and then they weren't doing their own thing anymore. They became a world power, and the rest of that, of course, is history. We see that in the next couple of verses, in verse 3 and 4, about this mighty king that shall arise and have great dominion and to do as he wills. This is Alexander, speaking of this particular great king, and for a short time he would conquer most of the known world. The first biographer of Alexander actually said this of him, nations believed that he could do whatever he wanted to them. And so nations feared Alexander because he was able to just roll in and he rolled over most of the known world. His conquering engine was up there with the greatest ever assembled, definitely the greatest in European history and even some rivaling that in the rest of the world. Dozens of books have been written about Alexander, some of them very good concerning his leadership style, concerning his military strategy. He was a marvel of the ancient world, this this young dude who's running around just conquering everything, doing as he pleased. And most historians believe that he died just drinking some wine, like some bad wine, that he died. He was maybe poisoned, maybe not. And his kingdom was divided. We read here in verse 4 how his kingdom was divided to the four winds of heaven. Now he's talked about by a relatively small circle of people who like history or enjoy reading about the greats of the past. You know, that those few pages that are dedicated to Alexander concerning the great things that he did. Many attribute the rise of civilization in those years to his standardizing coinage and language and many other things throughout the known world. Some even talk about how the coming of Christ was perfectly timed because of Alexander, this world that he had created. Everything made perfect sense for Jesus to come because of the work that this pagan Alexander had done in advance. Maybe so. But in the end... The things he is most prized for were scattered to the four winds. And he had no say over any of it. We tend to worship men who believe, who we believe have something that we don't have. Maybe they, we worship them because they can make money or they're really good at it or they're successful at something that they do or they have some kind of celebrity of some kind and we think that that's something that we want and so we worship them. Even in the Christian world, We do this. We idolize these people all the time in social media. You'll see somebody ask in order to get hits. They'll ask, who do you think the best preacher is right now? And the assumption is is that they're talking about someone famous, right? And that you let people come in there and they list all these famous preachers because we love fame. We idolize it. We think that it must be someone on TV or someone who has a podcast because we love those accomplishments. While most of the world toils away in relative obscurity, those few bits of cream that get exposed to the top seem to fascinate us the most. And we want nothing more than to be just like them. And they, like the man who conquered the known world, will largely be forgotten. One of the main ideas here from Daniel chapter 11 is that we are not great. Neither are the people that we idolize. God is great. 
God is the true actor in history, and his primary action was to secure a people for himself for all time, even sending his only begotten son to make it happen. And while it may be easy for us to get bound up in this minutia of history, we have to stay grounded in that sovereign work of our Lord. And that brings us to the next point, political chaos. This chapter stands above any in the Bible, in my estimation. I've done a lot of study in the Scriptures over the last 20 plus years. And as far as its breadth of scope and its depth of detail at the same time, there's this massive scope that's going on, but also just the detail of the prophecy here is just outstanding. There's some very specific prophecies here and that covers approximately 20 or, or 300 years of time. Very specific details of people. There aren't any names given, just a names of some countries, and that's about it. But throughout this time period, historians have been, biblical historians in particular, have been able to pinpoint, well, this is talking about this person because, look, it's, it really just literally says what they did. And I enjoyed reading it and studying it and learning about all these different things, but we do not have time to tease out every single detail here. There have been other pastors who have done it. I will recommend one that uh, preached on Daniel 11 that I believe gave a very thorough treatment of it, and uh, it's Dr. Vody Bauckham. Some of you are familiar with him. If you just go to YouTube and search Vody Bauckham Daniel 11, you will find his sermon, and he spent an hour going through this passage, and his treatment was a fairly cursory treatment of it as well, just kind of skimming over the top. And so you can spend hours and hours combing through this passage. And if they, if you're into that, by all means, do it. An hour-long sermon may be attractive to some, but I thought I'd spare you of that today. And just kind of hit the high points, the messages, especially these middle verses, verses 5 through 35, where we get this very intricate story of history that's going on. I want to bring out a couple of main points. The first one is really an overall takeaway, is that the kingdoms of this earth are really unstable, really unstable. And it has to do with the fact that their gods are unstable because they are no gods at all. Notice the constant upheaval that's taking place, right? You have this king of the north and the king of the south that are constantly mentioned, but in reality, the king of the north and the king of the south are always changing. It's not just one person that's talking about this whole time, but these are just multiple people that are being referred to as the king of the north and the king of the south. There's a takeover here, a battle there, some sort of political chaos going on in every kind of place where there's seemingly no one to trust. Everyone is out to get everyone else. Alexander built up this great kingdom. Just take a moment and look up Alexander's kingdom and see a picture of it. It was massive. And then it was split into four smaller kingdoms. And some of those are really big still. And two of those kingdoms were at war almost the entirety of their existence, this king of the north and the king of the south. The kingdom of the north was probably the Seleucids, which is focused mainly in Syria and going and west, this massive empire. And then the Ptolemies in Egypt. They would rise against each other over and over until finally one of them prevailed. Whereas the kingdom of God, of course, always remains stable. Not the geopolitical kingdom of God, because that doesn't exist, but rather, God had a people in Israel for a time, and yet His people are not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. 
And so while the nation of Israel is important as we read through biblical history, as our understanding as it even serves as a center of what's going on here, this king of the north is north of Israel and the king of the south is south, and they're just kind of using Israel as a tramping ground in between. They're just kind of an also-ran here because there's other things that are going on. The ultimate kingdom at play here is the kingdom of God. Another thing to talk about here is that evil gains a foothold every time that we cooperate with it. Look with me at verse 30. And so at, at the, the figure here that's going to be featured is this one that we've talked about before, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he went against Egypt. And this is where we pick up in verse 34. The ships, the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So this Antiochus, if you read history, he was forced out of Egypt and he kind of runs back to Jerusalem, which we see there in verse 30. And from there he tormented the people of Israel. He even set up an altar to Zeus in their temple, the temple that they had rebuilt after all the exile that they had went through. He sets up an altar to Zeus, which here is called this abomination that makes desolate. And many of the Jews during this time were actually sympathetic to him. You know, he went there. It says that he went back looking for those who would forsake the Holy Covenant. And those are the ones that he was trying to seduce. They had fallen in love with this Hellenistic lifestyle that was sweeping the globe. And they they would rather be these Greeks than to follow their own tradition. And so with that, Antiochus gained a foothold. And from there, he was able to make havoc on the Jewish people. And it doesn't take much for evil to gain a foothold. Anytime we exchange the truth of God for the lie of the world, this is exactly what happens. We do that anytime we trust a man to save us. When we're seeking the approval of man, and that's what we need in order to be sustained. We need someone to approve of us in order to feel right with the world. Anytime we seek man's approval, we are chasing after the wind, a thing that can never be reached and a thing that is easily lost. God's word remains clear for us today in this, and I think particularly as we are nearing end election, we had the debates the other night, and we have this every four years, we have this parade of clowns that comes in front of us. Christians have to be very careful with who we believe and why we believe them. And they're not all bad. They're not all bad at all. They're all, but they're all human. That's the point. None of them are able to save. And frankly, none of them are able to come through with all the claims that they make because they don't know the future. Only Jesus is able to do that. Trust in the political machinations of the day is what sent Israel into a downward spiral that ended with the destruction of their temple in AD 70, and they have never recovered. And this was the beginning of the end for them. In order for the church to persevere, we must trust God at His Word. 
The last idea here, but easily the most important, notice the most abundant word that you see over and over in this text. By my count, chapter 11 has this word in it 123 times. And it is the word shall. I'll just read a couple of these verses here. Verse 5, the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he is and shall rule. Verse 10, his sons shall wage war and assemble a great multitude of forces which shall keep coming and overflow the pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Verse 14, in those times many shall rise against the king of the south and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Over and over again we read these things that shall happen. Another 23 times, and I tried to emphasize it in my reading, is the word but, which suggests that the the actors on this grand stage may think they had figured things figured out, but something else happened altogether different. Because who controls the shalls and the buts of history? There's only one who can. The sovereign Lord of creation is the one who controls these things. He is the only one ever that never wakes up surprised in the morning because he doesn't wake up. This is the story written before the foundation of the world and his telling of it shouldn't surprise us. He knows his own story and so him conveying this story to the prophet Daniel shouldn't surprise us at all. He knows what shall happen. He knows when we are going to be surprised by the things that happens, but he never is. And he is also, and this is important, because as we consider these ideas that that are now fixed in our history, for Daniel these were things that were going to happen that shall happen because because God is the ordainer of all things, but now these are things that are fixed in our history as things that have happened. So who can we trust? We can trust the one that has done these things, that said they would happen and they did, and that he has also secured our salvation in Christ. He did it. It has happened. What do we have to fear? Why do we read about these things or the things that are going on in our world and become afraid? Why do we watch presidential debates and become afraid at what we see and the things that we hear Why do we read about things like inflation and sickness and upheaval and become afraid? Why why are we afraid of anything? Because we don't believe in a God who shall ordain all things to come to pass. Our fear is rooted in the fact that we believe that God is also subject to these events just as we are. And we're terrified. And a God who shall work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Do we believe that, brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we believe that He is doing that, has done it, and will continue to do it? Trust in God. Rest in Him. History is already planned out. 
He wins. And He brings His people home in the end. There's no debate about that. And so let's rest. And that brings us to the last point, spiritual vigilance. These last nine verses here, 36 and following, there's a bit of a switch of gears here. It seems like we're still talking about this this figure Antiochus, but the tone changes completely to one who seems to be parading himself as a god. And there's other things that are going on here that don't really make sense to make it kind of match up with verses 5 through 35. The overwhelming consensus of this passage is that he, or that this is referring to this future leader who is known as the Antichrist. This figure that is the opposite of Christ who rather than coming to save and bring glory to God is coming to destroy and bring glory to himself, this evil one of history. And we've studied Revelation. We've studied other apocalyptic type passages. And you know kind of my stance has been on this figure. But I believe after careful reading and study here that some of my views maybe have changed on this. I'm not quite ready to like commit to that 100% just because of, you know, I've had these views for a long time. But after reading men who are a lot more intelligent than I am, um, I'm starting to understand that this may be talking about some figure that exists in the future known as the Antichrist. We've read through, again, other revelation, other apocalyptic literature. Those works haven't convinced me of that necessarily, but here there's just some things that don't work with a past figure. Especially up to this point, up to verse 35, everything is strikingly accurate, and then all of a sudden things stop making sense. Things stop lining up with history, and so we obviously have to be talking about the, the future. So this Antichrist figure comes on the scene at some future time and throughout history, and even today there have been many types of the Antichrist, with individuals who point large numbers away from God and toward themselves and have a, a kind of power that doesn't really seem normal. This Antiochus Epiphanes is the perfect example of this. He was able to raise up an army basically out of nothing and do something that other armies before him weren't able to even get close to doing. For our time, we've, we've seen some of this as well. Not my own lifetime, but in our, in our general history, like figures like Hitler and Stalin come to mind. But I even think of figures from like the 70s, like Jim Jones is a great example who was able to convince a thousand people to commit suicide just for him. This is a type of antichrist. These are individuals who all prefigure this future individual that will be a sign of the end of times. So much of what is written in verses in these last nine verses could be speculated about, and if you just start reading, it's it's crazy, some of the different stuff that's written about them. And so to sit here and just walk through it and exposit each verse, I don't know that would be all that helpful for us because we'd be in danger of attempting to take these nine verses and make them match the newspaper of today. Looking for details in the newspaper that aren't here in this text, and vice versa, when rather we should be reading it to see what it teaches us about our Lord Jesus. And that takes me back to chapter 10, that spiritual battle taking place with the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, and who knows what else was going on there, We have nothing to fear 
when it comes to some future figure that at the end of verse 45 it tells us, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. He shall come to his end. There's nothing for us to fear. We worship one who commands armies of angels. They are at his beck and call. And yet he doesn't even need them. That's what's incredible because he spoke all things into existence with words. He holds the entire earth together. And while he had infinite power in his hands, he laid it all down so that you and I could be free from the bondage of this world, from the fears of this world, from the concerns of the future. And he took those things, and not just our anxieties, not just our worries, but he took all of our sins. Those things are indeed sin, but he took all of our sin, those things that separate us from the Father, and he took them upon himself, and he suffered death and shame at the hands of people like we're reading about here. Just do-nothings, good-for-nothings, here today, gone tomorrow, the very Lord of creation subjected himself to them so that you and I could have life and have it abundantly. If you're an unbeliever here today, you can have this life simply by calling upon the name of Jesus Christ. If you believe that He is Lord, that God has risen Him from the dead, you can be saved. For the believer, we cannot let something like the future bother us because we read this again and again. God knows it all. We are reading this as an accurate history. We are reading it as an accurate history. Daniel wrote it down hundreds of years before it happened. God is over all of history, and He shall be victorious. Through Christ, we have ultimate victory over our sins and death, and we have victory every day as we learn to trust Him more and more. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us endeavor all the more to trust in God, to cast our cares and our future concerns on Him and have rest for our souls. And it's this peace that we can pass to others as well as a world desperate for any kind, any kind of peace. They'll take it. Let's tell them about the only place that they can find that peace, and that is in Christ. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we... Consider the words here that you've written, that you've given to us. Lord, help us to not be afraid. I can't imagine how Daniel held it together all of those years ago, knowing that these things would come to pass, knowing that he was not even in his home when all of this was happening. And Lord, we are much less than Daniel. Lord, help us. To not be afraid of what the world is presenting us with, but instead know that you, for all time, have redeemed a people for yourself and even now are preparing a place for us. That you plan to keep us safe. You plan to bring us home. So Lord, help us to rest. And Lord, help us to bring this rest to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.